listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. have your Bibles, and I hope you do. I'm going to invite you to turn with us again to Acts chapter number two. If you're new to the scripture, Acts is a uh, book in the New Testament. It's a little bit further than halfway in your Bible. If you've got a paper Bible, it's a little bit farther than halfway to find the New Testament. You'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and if you keep going to the right, you'll discover the book of Acts. If you have a smartphone and that's where your scripture is, then you ought to know how to follow the index and push the buttons. Acts chapter 2. We're doing a series in the book of Acts over the summer, and we're not trying to finish it. We're just sort of uh, just sort of walking our way through the text, asking the question, okay, Lord, what is it that you want us in this New Testament era to learn from this transitional period? By transitional, we mean that when Jesus came, it was under the covenant, if you will, of the Old Testament. It was under the, the, the rules and the regulations and the way in which a person was to approach God by faith through their connection to the law and through their connection to his people Israel. That was the old covenant, the Old Testament way of approaching this God who had revealed himself to his creation. When Jesus came, Jesus brought a fulfillment of the Old Testament with his life. He actually came and accomplished what no other human being was ever able to accomplish in connection to the law. And Jesus became that perfect fulfillment of God's requirement of holiness. But we also know that in the gospel story that Jesus laid down his life as a sacrificial substitute, having proven that his life was acceptable in reference to God's holiness. He laid down his holy life in order to become a sacrifice very similar to the sacrifices in the Old Testament, which in that case only covered sin, but Jesus' sacrifice in its completeness brought a cleansing from sin. No longer sacrifices needing to be made. One sacrifice was made for all and sufficient for all. And we come to learn that every one who addresses God through the person of Jesus by faith in his death and resurrection can be brought into right relationship with him. We learn that in the gospels as we see the story of Jesus playing out. He was crucified, he was buried, and then he was raised from the dead victorious. Now in the book of Acts, we see the the tail end of the Jesus story, if I can say it that way. We see him resurrected and then chapter number one, we saw him ascending back to the father with a promise being made that when I go, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but rather I'm going to send another helper, another comforter, one that will be with you in a way greater than I can be with you tangibly and spatially. I'm going to send that comforter from the father to be with you and to be in you. And so we were seeing that Jesus was promising or giving word to a promise that God had made that the Holy Spirit was going to come to indwell his people in a way he had never indwelt them before. 
So when Jesus came, we have the first real physical interaction between God and man in the Old Testament where God the Father was speaking through the prophets, he was speaking through uh, the kings, and he was showing himself visible at times in, in different signs and symbols. Then we see Jesus, God, coming in human flesh and being, dwelling with his creation. And then when Jesus ascending, we hear the Holy Spirit is to come and be God's presence on earth in a way like he never been before. Last week, we saw how that the Holy Spirit actually came just as God had promised. Acts chapter number two, Jesus had told them, I want you to go back, his, his disciples and followers, about 120 of them. He says, I want you to go back into Jerusalem and I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. And when he comes, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Those disciples, those followers of Jesus obeyed his command, went and waited. And last week we saw in the first part of Acts chapter 2 that when they were gathered together on the day, the feast day of Pentecost, the feast of weeks, the feast of celebration of the end of the grain harvest, that the Holy Spirit actually came in in, in fulfillment of the promise in a very spectacular way. What was the sound that they heard, class? You were here last week. What was the sound of a mighty, a mighty rushing wind, a, a, a sound that, that made no mistake something was happening. And they not only heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind, they saw what appeared to be these separated tongues or, 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 or little balls of what did they see? Fire. And that fire divided, we think divided, and then went and just hovered over each one of the 120. And when they did that, the Bible tells us that they, he, he, let me back up. The coming of the Spirit, we believe, is, is what is known as the baptism of the Spirit, by which the Spirit comes to dwell within us and plunges us into spiritually, physically, whatever it had to take plunges us into the death and resurrection of Jesus, making us one with him. And then the Bible says they were <clears throat> filled with the Spirit and they began to do what? They began to speak in unknown what? Tongues. <clears throat> but last week we learned that these tongues that they were speaking, they were languages that they had not learned themselves but they were the languages of the people who were there in Jerusalem. Remember the list that Luke gave us? He said there were people from all over the place, from, uh, from the people from uh, the, the Parthians and the, the Egyptians and the Cretans and the Cyrenes and the, and the uh, Asians and all kinds of folks were there and they were hearing the mighty works of God declared by these Galileans who had never learned their language and yet they're hearing the mighty works of God in their own native tongue. You know how that, uh, that that was a pretty spectacular event. And what did we say that was, that was happening? It was God demonstrating by the means of a sign to authenticate what he had promised. Who were the signs primarily for? The people of Israel. So that what was said was going to happen could be authenticated in the presence of the Jews. And those were the people people who were hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. We learned last week that when they heard these things, there were two groups of people. 
there was the group of people that says, this is phenomenal. These folks are Galilean. They shouldn't know my language, and yet they are speaking the mighty works of God in my native tongue. What does this mean? There's something to this. And then there were others that were saying, oh, there's nothing going on here. These guys are just drunk in the morning. They're, uh, they're drunk on new wine. These guys are, are just partiers. And what you're hearing is drunken gibberish. <clears throat> now, I don't know of anyone who in a drunken stupor has ever learned how to speak German if they've never learned German or Russian or Spanish or Latin or French. It just doesn't happen that way as we're killing brain cells to all of a sudden learn how to speak a foreign language. So we know that there are those that wanted to know and there were others that had no desire to know. The bottom line is at this event, which marked the coming of the Holy Spirit to believers. That was a one-time event, we believe, where the Spirit came and now he is with his believers. And we have all of the Spirit when we receive Jesus as our Savior. That is the baptism, but we argue that the filling is when we give him control of our life and then he can do what only he can do in and through our life. But it still begged the question, what's going on here? All these folks are just drunk. That's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 14. Now, because Acts is a transitional book, there are things in Acts that are going to happen in a certain way for a certain purpose, and then, and then we'll transition into a new way of operation, okay? So uh, I believe that the, the mighty rushing, any, anybody except Jesus, and then all of a sudden you heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind or saw a ball of fire come hover over your head. I've never had anyone tell me that. I've led a few people to the Lord in my life. I've never seen that happen. So how do we, how do we wrestle? with that we say well God uh, God signified what was happening and then that transitioned into a new way of operation where we go okay the spirit has been sent those who receive Jesus as savior also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit but when we come to Acts we got to be real careful that we don't go oh it happened there so it's got to happen now or this happened this way here so it's got to happen this way now this is a book of transitioning but there's also some things that we see in this book of Acts that help us to get a glimpse of how we are supposed to be. And I think what happens today in chapter number two is a glimpse for every one of us to see when we are in the company of unbelievers, what can we expect the Holy Spirit to do through us if we will let him. I'm going to say it again. When we, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I am so glad you're here. Just hold on. You're about to hear something fantastic. But if you're a follower of Jesus, what are we to expect from the Holy Spirit when we are in the company of unbelievers, if we will just allow the Spirit to work through us. I'm not talking about pastors. I'm not talking about those that have called to preach. I'm not talking about missionaries. I'm talking about you who know Jesus as your Savior. What can you expect God to do through you 
in the presence of unbelievers if you will let him. I think we're about to see. Acts chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. This is in the middle of the people rushing. What was that sound? What was that going on? And now we're hearing the mighty works of God in our own native tongues. And they're beginning to question, what does this mean? All these folks are just drunk. And the Bible tells us that Peter stands up in the midst of the 11 to address this curious crowd. Now let's think about Peter. Peter was one of the first disciples chosen by Jesus. Peter, if we could describe him, was the roughest of the rough around the edges, right? We hear in the Gospels, Peter is constantly in his own way of thinking, in his own, uh, with what he brings to the table, Peter was constantly speaking first and thinking second. Some of you wives are married to husbands that are a lot like Peter. We sometimes speak first and then we realize, oh wow, that sounded much worse on the outside of my mouth than it did on the inside of my brain. Maybe I ought to let it stay inside my brain a little longer before it comes out my mouth. That was Peter, was constantly speaking and then thinking and it was getting him into trouble. Not only that, Peter was in the, in the height of the tension of following Jesus in the upper room and Jesus is telling his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to turn on him. And Peter goes, not me, Lord. You can count on me wherever you're going. I'm going. Whatever happens to you is happening to me. I'm your boy, Jesus. I'm the one. And Jesus goes, yes, you are the one who's going to deny me three times before the rooster crows tonight. So we see Peter constantly speaking first, thinking second, boasting about himself, thinking that he was further along in his relationship than he was. And then he resorts to violence. Once Jesus is betrayed, and you remember they come to take him by force, who's the one that reaches into his cloak, pulls off, or pulls out his sword and misses the guy's head and lops off his ear? It's Peter. He's resorting to vice. So this guy's a hothead. He's a numbskull. He's a speak first, think later, and thinks more highly of himself than he ought. And then we see him out by the fire, warming himself while Jesus is being tried illegally, by the way. And we hear those that are accusing him of being one of his close followers. And we hear him three times go, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Get off my back, I don't know him, using some probably colorful language to make his point. So we see him ultimately doing what Jesus said in denying Jesus. This is Peter. And then after that, what does he do? He says, I'm giving up. I'm going to go back to fishing. I'm no use to Jesus. He'll never want to use me again. Listen to me. There are some in this room today who resonate so much with Peter that you may be sitting here today, but your life feels so much like Peter that you're here 
but you know in your heart you're thinking, God can't use me. I've been such a failure in my life. I've blown it so much that God will never be able to use me. Can I point you back to Peter out in the boat, having given up, having quit, having gone back to the life that he knew before he ever came into contact with Jesus, when from the shore, he hears the voice of the one who called him the first time, and that one invites him back into the fellowship because he is useful. He He is going to be something in the kingdom of God. He is able to be used by the one who cleanses and makes us new every day of our life. He's willing to do that and use us. If you're here today and you're going, I can't be anything. God can't use me. Then you look at Peter because right here, what's it say? Peter stood with the 11 and delivered, in my opinion, the second most fantastic sermon in all of scripture. Second only, well, second to anything Jesus preached, but in my mind, second to the Sermon on the Mount, this idiot stood up. You know what the difference between this idiot today and this idiot a little bit more than a month earlier? Who has come to be with him? And what has this one come to bring him? power to be a witness this village idiot is about to bring the truth let's listen to it what's he say men of judea and all who dwell in jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declared, he's quoting Joel 2, 28 through 32. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved Peter, now in the possession of the Holy Spirit and yielded to his control, is boldly preaching Jesus. And guess what the most phenomenal factor is in this sermon? He's completely unprepared. He's completely unprepared. Nobody told him, hey, Peter... Could you be prepared to speak next week to a group of folks that are going to be gathered and you've got a week to prepare? No, completely extemporaneously, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. One of my most common nightmares, this, this is, 
I don't know, maybe some of you have had the dream that you go to school in your underwear. Maybe you have had that dream. Maybe you hadn't. Maybe I'm weird, but I have had that. And the most shocking thing about that is I'm going, how in the world did my mama let me out the house like this? I'm totally embarrassed. I don't know. But that dream has changed. It's different now. And this dream, I have this dream about once every 60 days or so. And here's what it is. I'm at a church somewhere. I know what that church is, though it's never someplace I've ever been before. And and a couple of things are always happening. I know that the service has begun, the singing has happened, and I don't know where to go. I can't find my place. I can't find how to get there. And here's the worst thing. I have no idea what I'm going to be preaching. They're expecting me to preach, but I have no, I think that's one of my biggest fears is to be here and be unprepared. There's been a lot of weeks that I thought I was prepared and I did the very best I could and it just came out gibberish. I know because I saw the looks on your faces and we just have to go, okay, Lord, I don't know what happened there, but obviously there was more of me than there was of you. We'll try again next week. But I have that, I have that fear that I'm going to be unprepared to do what God's called me to do. Think about this. A crowd, a curious crowd, a wondering what in the world is going on here in the middle of Jerusalem only 50 days after Jesus has been crucified. Peter standing up to address the people having no time to prepare. And what does he do? He starts off his sermon by explaining what it is you people have just seen. Men of Judea, hear what I have to say. These that you're hearing speak the mighty works of God in your own language, they're not drunk. For crying out loud, it's only nine in the morning. We're devout Jews like you. We've not been drinking. Come on, I think he probably could have even said, come smell our breath. That's not what's happening. But I'm going to tell you what is happening. Buckle your seatbelts. Here's what's happening. Joel the prophet prophesied that this is going to happen. Now, you probably know some verses by memory. John 3.16 and some others as such. But I would be willing to bet if I were to say, raise your hand if you can quote a verse from Joel. Not many of you could unless it was this particular passage because of how important this passage is in the book of Acts. Most of you probably couldn't raise your hand and go, yes, I could quote Joel chapter number two, verse number 29 says, blah, 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 blah. Yet Peter, yes, schooled in the synagogues as a normal Hebrew young man, but a fisherman, not a rabbi, not the follower of a rabbi, though he's been with Jesus for the past three and a half years. He stands and quotes an obscure passage out of the book of Joel and says, no, we're not drunk But what Joel said centuries ago, y'all remember him, the prophet that we've studied in synagogue school, he said, and he begins to rattle off. Now, if you flip your Bible, I'm not asking you to do this this morning. If you flip your Bible to Joel chapter number two, verses 28 through 32, you're going to discover that there are a couple of things that Peter says and puts out of order. Like there are a couple of things he gets backwards and then he adds a couple of words in there. Don't let that bother you. 
Don't let that bother you. Because it's not so much about him getting the right wording, word for word. He's relaying the message of the script. So many of us are ashamed to share what we know God's word has to say because we can't remember the address of the, of the passage. You know, I, I've got some friends who, man, I start, I, and I can remember there are times even in this church that I would say a verse and I could look up and this one particular friend could tell me where it was at and what verse it was. And I couldn't even begin to tell you. Some folks have that gift. I don't. Many of you probably don't know where it's found. Is it 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians or is it Ephesians or is it a Galatians? I don't know, but I know it says, and we're timid to share because we can't speak it exactly and we don't know where it's found what we see right here under the control of the holy spirit peter is communicating what he knows of joel and what god is bringing to his memory can i show you john chapter number 14 verse number 26 Jesus was talking about this helper that is to come. Notice that Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So I want you to put yourself in the company of an unbeliever. I want you to think about the number of times that you haven't shared truth with them because this, this thing is coming to your mind, but I'm afraid to say this because I can't remember if it's from, from 1 Corinthians or, 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 or 1 Thessalonians, and so I'm not going to share it. Look, Peter didn't say where this was in Joel. He just said, Joel said... You know what you can say? You can go, Jesus says, or Paul says, or Peter says, or I just heard last week, Pastor Kevin said from whatever passage he was preaching, here's what God's word has to say. When God brings things to your memory, jump on them things. Share them. He says, here's what Joel had to say. Joel had to say, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all. You go, well, wait a minute. So what you're saying, Peter, is that this is what's happening. Wait, 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 wait Peter. There's only 120 of y'all. Joel says that, he, that God's going to pour out his spirit on all. Not, not a problem. Joel is looking at this promise as a completed whole. Look, when Jesus returns and he sets up his kingdom and, and we're ruling and reigning with him, How many of those ruling and reigning with him are going to have the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit? It's a three-letter word, starts with A, ends in L. It is all. Joel is looking at this from a holistic standpoint. Peter's looking at this as what you see here is what Joel prophesied. You give it enough time, every follower of Jesus, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what class? Saved. And they'll all have the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't have to mean that it's all happened at once. It just means what Joel said was going to happen has started to happen right now. What you are seeing is the pouring out of the Spirit on God's people. Well, who are God's people, Peter? 
I'm glad you asked. I'm about to explain it. It goes into his second part of his sermon. If the first part was, let me explain to you what you are and aren't seeing, then the second movement, the largest in his sermon is, let me tell you who God's people are by telling you who God's Messiah is. And we start here at verse number 22. And I love this because right here in verse number 22, he's going to start with an imperative and there's going to be two more to follow. And these are very important. When he says these imperatives, he's going, hey, look at me. Listen, you listen. You ever had a daddy say that or a mama go, you look at me. I'm about to, you know, and that what we mean. They know they mean business and what's to follow is very important to our own livelihood. So we had better pay attention, right? That's what Peter does here. He says, men of Israel... Hear these words, an imperative. Listen up, men of Israel. Guys, this is a phenomenon. You think that the miracle of the day of Pentecost, which this is still the day of Pentecost, right? This is not a new day, same day. We think that the miracle of Pentecost was that these people started speaking in languages they had not learned. That's the, that was the sign of the coming of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit we're seeing right now is this doofus that was quitting and running away and didn't want to have anything to do with this one that might cost him his life. We see this dude standing up when a month earlier he was hiding for fear of the Jews, standing up and going, you folks better listen to me because I'm about to tell you something about God's Messiah. Now what in the world happened to Peter? You know the answer. Before today, he didn't have what? The Holy Spirit. Today, he's got the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit comes power to do what? To shoot lightning from your hands, to fly, to turn into a big green monster. No, to be my witnesses wherever you go, to represent me, represent and reflect me. He goes, hey. Y'all listen to me. I'm about to tell you about who God's people is and it has everything to do with who Jesus is. I love this. This dude is on fire. Listen to what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, in case y'all forgot where he was from. Y'all remember the one who came from the place that a prophet couldn't come from? Jesus who came to y'all from that. Y'all know the one, right? Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Now I'm just gonna give just like a little, little short trail over here. Jesus is 100% God. Never stop being 100% God, but Jesus is 100% man, human. Well, Pascal, how can you be 100% of two things? You can't, it can't be 100% glass of Coke and 100% glass of Dr. Pepper. You're right. I can't explain it. I just know what he says, and we believe it. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Peter alludes to this fact. The man, Jesus, from Nazareth, in case you got him mixed up, he was attested to you by God. Now, this word attested, it's important. It means to put forward to display the characteristics or the quality of a particular entity. It's like someone coming and go, you know, they're showing you things at the yard sale. 
and you're looking through some trinkets and they go, oh, you're looking at that. Let me show you something else. And they go to the back and they bring out the good thing, right? You're playing with the trinkets and they go, this is what, what happens when dignitaries come to different countries. The leader of that country goes, oh, let me show you our best and most treasured. Peter goes, this Jesus of Nazareth, this was a man that God, y'all know him, Yahweh, y'all remember, we study about him, y'all know who God is, right? He's the one we worship in this temple. He put him forward to you. He brought him to you. And then the God you say you serve displayed Jesus of Nazareth in front of you to show you the quality of him. And you say, well, how did he do that, Peter? I'm glad you asked. He attested Jesus to you with mighty works, with wonders, and with signs that, get this, God did through him. How did God present him to you? Well, he did it by fulfilling all of those prophecies that some of y'all know good and well, he fulfilled all of them just in where he was born and where he came from and how he died and that he wrote, but I'll get to that in a minute. So he attested to him, but he also demonstrated him through the mighty works, the wonders and the signs. Y'all know them things that he did. Y'all know that bread and fish that y'all ate till you couldn't eat anymore from one little sack lunch. That was God working through him to display him to you. Peter preached Jesus authenticated by God through the things he did, through the things he said. And look what he says, that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Bob, Bob, hey, you're wondering what's happening here? Bob, look here. You saw all those things Jesus did. You were there. I saw you. It was God working through him. He was authenticated by God himself. He preached Jesus, God's chosen Messiah. Verse number six, uh, 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He preached Jesus authenticated, attested. Now he's preaching Jesus crucified. And look what he did. He created a little bit of a paradox here. He started out in saying, by God's definite plan, this one that he put forth, as sufficient as the one that he has made for us. He, by his definite plan, put him to death. But you crucified. It's like Peter saying God intended for him to be crucified, but he's putting them on the hook for crucifying him. How is this possible? It's either God's plan and these folks aren't to blame or these folks are to blame and God had to come up with a different plan. How are these possible? We're using human logic. The idea here, and I was listening to a podcast and that particular preacher helped me when he says, what we need to see is that there's one event, the death of Jesus, but there are two intentions. What was the intention of God in the death of Jesus? 
to provide forgiveness of sin for you and for me and for everyone else he had created. But what was the intention of those who killed him? To destroy him and get him out of the way. So in one event, we see two intentions when we see the sovereignty of God operating and bringing about his divine intention while at the same time using sinful men and still holding them accountable. You go, how in the world are we to understand this? It's what some have called the 50-20 principle. Say that with me, the 50-20 principle. You say, what is that? Genesis 50 20, Joseph is standing before his brothers who had sold him into slavery, had taken their brother that they hated and sold him into slavery to a far off country where Joseph ascended to a place of authority and by God's providence was able to to make sure that there was enough food for everyone to survive the famine that was coming and including Joseph's brothers. And when he was standing before them in this lofty position, looking down on the ones who had betrayed him, looking down on the ones who had sold him to his death and wrote him out of their life, he said to them, as for you, brothers of mine, you meant evil against me. What you did to me was for evil. But look what he says, but God minute for good at the self same time these brothers did an unthinkable deed but God was using that deed to accomplish his purpose and he goes on Joseph says and he says he meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today and then verse 21 says so do not fear I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The 50-20 principle is this. Things that come into your life may have been motivated by an evil intent of the people in your life. But the sovereign God above you will use those things intended to harm you for your good and for his glory. Sounds a lot like what we learned from James when James says, count it all joy when you find yourselves in various fiery trials. But notice what Peter does. Oh yeah, this Jesus that he put forward, it was his divine plan that he be crucified. But you jokers, you're the ones who killed him. And you ought to be shaken in your boots because you killed the one that God brought to be your king. He preached his uh, authentication. He preached his crucifixion. Verse number 24. This one that was delivered up according to the definite plan foreknowledge of God. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of his death, of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This one that you crucified, it was God's anointed, the one that he put forward to you. But it was his plan for him to be crucified 
And you killed him and you put him to death for your own selfishness and you let the Romans do it. His blood is on your hands. But I got to tell you something, God who worked those miracles through him, God who put him forth before you, God raised him up. Death could not hold him. Blessed assurance, this Jesus is mine. Y'all catch that verse in there where death could not hold him? God raised him up. Listen, if the signs and the wonders and the fulfillment of the prophecies should have been evidence enough that who Jesus said he was is actually who he was, then this account right here puts all of that evidence to shame in that he got up from the dead. Now, the Romans were good at a lot of things, but one of the best things they were good at was killing a man. They knew how to kill a person and make sure that they were graveyard dead. Jesus died at the hands of those lawless men spurred on by his own people. And God brought him to life. Death could not hold Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified by the Romans in about 30 AD, was raised from the dead, the only one ever come back alive, never to die again. It is the singular proof. And you go, well, you can't prove it. Look, I wasn't there to see it. There's no video evidence, but I can tell you this. If we apply all of the same rules to the eyewitness accounts of other things in history, if we apply all of those rules that that give us the confidence that Genghis Khan did what Genghis Khan did, where Genghis Khan did it, if we apply those rules to those facts that we will write down on a history test in any school in the world, if we apply the same rules that we apply to those documents to the thousands more biblical documents that are available to us, then we have overwhelming evidence to one incredibly important detail of the life of Jesus, and that is he was raised from the dead and folks saw him alive. So no, I can't prove it. But I also can't prove Genghis Khan existed either. But who's going to take on the scholastic world and try to prove him out of history? Let's just apply the same rules and go, wow, I can see through the eyes of Peter, the resurrected Lord. I can see through the eyes of John. The resurrected, I can see through the eyes of Matthew and Paul who saw him in a weird place on a road to go destroy Christians. He saw, I can see through the eyes of those who saw him. And what Jesus said to Thomas is, you believe because you see and touch how much greater for them who see, who, who don't see and yet believe. Count me amongst them. Peter said, you killed him. But God raised him. Let me give you a little biblical support. Again, from memory, without being prepared. 
He says, uh, for David, verse number 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Why? My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, to, to, to death, to hell, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made it known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Who was David writing? What, what person was David writing in first? David was writing in his poetic style. One would think about himself. You will not let your holy one see corruption. You won't leave me in the grave. Peter goes, brothers, verse 29, I may say to you with confidence about our patriarch David. I mean, David was writing in the first person. We know Psalm chapter number 16. We've read it. We've quoted it. I'm going to present to you with confidence that our patriarch David has both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day i've got it on pretty good authority since we know where david is buried right over here we all go there and we all we've all seen it we've been there a thousand times i'm going to suggest that either david missed it or david was lying or David was talking about somebody else because his body has absolutely seen corruption. It's bones right over there. What, what do y'all reckon he was talking about? And Peter says, being therefore a prophet, David, and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant, that he would have the ultimate king. Verse number 31, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know that. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. It is, he was looking, he goes, David wasn't talking about himself. He's dead. He's buried. His body's decayed. Down the road, you know where it's at. He, as a prophet, was foreseeing the one that God had promised would be on his throne. He was talking about the resurrection of the Messiah, Peter says. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Listen up, folks. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Look, he says, David prophesied about the resurrection of the Messiah. Jesus from Nazareth was crucified and raised, and we saw him. Jesus was raised. Messiah is raised. You do the math. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. Unprepared. A scaredy cat. A speak first, think later 
is bringing the goods on this crowd who could have overwhelmed them and done away with them. He preached Jesus authenticated. He preached him crucified. He preached him risen. And now he's going to preach him ascended. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. By the way, Jesus said very similar words to the council that was trying him illegally just before he crucified. They crucified him. They said, are you the Messiah? And he says, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't have an answer. But here's what I will tell you. From now on, you'll see me at the right hand of the Father. And in Luke chapter number 22, those leaders go, what more proof do we need that this is a blasphemer and needs to be put to death? Peter says, y'all better listen up. God raised him. And now he's been exalted. I watched him go up in the clouds. And where you reckon he was going to? None other place than at the right hand of God. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He was authenticated by God. He was crucified by you. He was raised victorious from the dead. Now he has ascended. And from the right hand of the Father, you want to know what you're seeing? You're seeing Jesus having poured out the Holy Spirit just like he promised he would do in power at the right hand of the Father. He has ascended where he is alive right now and what you're seeing is his work you couldn't stop him here you can't stop him there he preached him authenticated crucified risen ascended glorified look at verse number 34 for david did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says and here he goes again quoting more scripture off the cuff Psalm chapter 110, verse number one, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand for how long, Father, until I make your enemies your footstool. We look around here at this world and we think it is getting out of hand. We look at the enemies of God. We look at the enemies of Jesus Christ and we think they are gaining control. That's nonsense. That is nonsense because God has already promised his Holy One. You just wait right there. You're going to go back and be king when it's time. But for the time being, I'm going to make your enemies a place for your feet. And they don't even know what's happening. We think we're losing the battle, church. That's a lie. That's the enemy trying to get us to stop being what God's called us to do. That's, that's the enemy trying to talk us out of the power that God has given us to be his witnesses because Jesus has already said the gates of hell cannot stand against who? Us. But only when we yield ourselves to the person of the Spirit and the work of God in being his witnesses. He preached him authenticated. He preached him crucified, risen, ascended, glorified, waiting to return. And then lastly, he preaches him as Messiah and Lord. 
Look what he says right here in verse number 36. And this is the second imperative. So he's already said, y'all listen up. I got some things to tell you. And boy, has he told them. And now he's about to say another imperative. He goes, let all the house, verse 36, let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain. You can hear me now and believe me later, but it ain't going to change the truth of what I'm about to tell y'all. Y'all want to know what you're seeing? Y'all want to know what's happening? I'm going to tell you. Jesus is at work and God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who, in case you've forgotten, this Jesus that you crucified. Not only is he God's Messiah, he is Lord. I don't know that Peter even recognized what he was saying. But to call him Lord in that sense, put him in the same category as what they were calling Yahweh in the Greek New Testament known as the Septuagint. So when Peter says he made him both Lord and Christ, I think what Peter's saying, maybe not even realizing it, God has elevated, you see, God the Son has always existed as, as fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God has always existed in perfect unity. But then God the Son set aside his godness, whatever that meant, whatever that, he set aside his rights as God so that he might become Jesus of Nazareth, so that he might relate to you and I. And when he put on that flesh, church, I'm just telling you, he's never going to take it off. He is now fully and eternally relatable to you and I. Yes, he is the God man, but he has flesh of a resurrected nature of which we are also going to have. And he forever is Jesus of Nazareth, the God man, the Messiah. And I think what Peter is saying, God, the son has always been God, but Jesus got a bad rap on earth. Jesus was rejected by most of the folks on earth. In his humanity, this God who raised him has now elevated him to the same status that he had at God the Son. This man, Jesus, whom you crucified, who for eternity will have the marks of what it cost me to save you. He is Lord. Now, you reckon Peter was ruffling the feathers of any of those folks that were listening? I got a sneaky feeling he was aggravating some people. Priest him authenticated, crucified, risen, ascended, glorified Lord. Verse number 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see, it wasn't about Peter. When, when, when I or others that, 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 that have the privilege of preaching God's word, we don't bring about your response. If we do, then what we've done is we've ratcheted your emotions and we've drawn you into some sort of feeling and that will fade and, and it won't be God. 
all we do are our mouthpieces to present truth and then you respond to what God has said. God cut them to the heart with the truth. Because Peter wasn't prepared for this sermon. All he did was just allow God to lead him and said the things he knew to be true and quoted some scriptures he might not have even remembered he knew. But he proclaimed Jesus as he is. And they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, brothers, what can we do? They were in effect saying, what hope is there for us? We killed him. We have his blood on our hands. We're responsible. We know we hear. So what hope is there for us? Peter said to them, verse 38, well, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. What for? For the forgiveness of of your sins and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see where they're at? They're in a place of going, we're guilty. What hope is there for us? And Peter goes, you see, that's the thing. While you were in the act of seeking to destroy him, God was in the act of providing a way for that very sin to be forgiven. What that tells us in 2019 is that you can't out sin God's grace and love for you. You can bring the worst that you have to the table and it will never outweigh God's love for you. How do I know God loves me? Because the Jesus that we in our sin were responsible for his death in his death and resurrection pays for your sin and mine. Well, what, what are we to do about this? Peter, what, what are we gonna do? Here's what you're gonna do. If you wanna have life, you want to be a part of God's family? Repent. Recognize your sin and then be baptized in the name of Jesus. And I don't think that Peter's saying that we're to be baptized in order to be saved. But for these Jews, for them to be able to publicly profess Jesus as Savior and identify themselves with him, for them to be baptized in the water in the name of Jesus, for every onlooking Jew said, I believe Jesus is Messiah. I believe that he died and rose from the dead. And I believe that he's alive and he's going to be king. And I believe that he's for me. Which was going to set them apart from the religious crowd that had rejected Jesus. And it was going to bring them by faith into the family. All that water did was give them the opportunity to truly make up their mind. You mean this or are you just saying it? What did Peter, uh, what did Peter say? He said, in effect, repent and confess. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse number 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what lord and if you believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead i love these words four of them what does it say you will be saved from what 
all of your sins. Past, present, future. You can be brought into the family of God and you too can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, what's he going to do? He's going to give you power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, yep, to the ends of the earth. What do we do with this? I'll tell you what they did. They received him. At least, verse number 41 says that those who received his word were baptized. And that day, and and were added that day about how many? 3,000. Because this was such a great sermon, I've preached Peter's sermon like a hundred times longer than he preached it. It's not about the mouthpiece. It's about the one speaking. So church, let me just boil this down. They said, well, what shall we do? And you're probably going, okay, well, what do we do now? Okay, great. We've heard it. What do we do? Well, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, here's what you do. Repent and confess him as Lord. If you've never trusted, it doesn't matter how much you know him. It doesn't matter how much you know about Christmas or Easter or any of that other stuff. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church. It doesn't matter what you did anywhere in time in like Bible school or anything. If you don't know for a fact that Jesus has saved you, if you don't know that you know that you know, then the answer for you is simple. Repent of the sin that put Christ on the cross and confess him as the risen Lord crucified in your place for your sin oh yeah we're going to talk about baptism too but it's about confession and faith so if you don't know jesus as savior today be a great day to go lord i know i'm a sinner i've heard a lot about jesus i've known a lot about jesus but i don't think i've ever i've ever confessed him as lord lord of all and lord of me and and i want to be your child on the basis of what jesus has done that's never been a reality for you today would be a great day. But if you do know Jesus as Savior, I want to encourage you, Christian. Here's what this is about. What shall we do? Here it is. You ready? You're going to go and start sharing Jesus right now. With the people you know and the circle that you're in, you're going to start sharing Jesus because that's what you've been called to. You go, I can't. I don't know enough about the Bible. You know what you know. And the same God that spoke through Peter will speak through you, but he ain't going to if you keep them lips shut. You can share Jesus if you will, and God will bring to remembrance those things that you have learned. And he may even bring to remembrance some things you didn't know you'd learned. But this is not what he's calling us to do. He's not calling us to go out and share like the kids come to take a test. You know how kids come to take a test, right? They've not studied. They've not, repa- they've not prepared. They've not done their homework. And they, before test, they're like, Lord, now I need a miracle today. You know, my, my grade is resting on this final exam. And if I don't pass, I don't pass. So, Lord, I need you to come through for me, and I need for you to do what only you can do. That's not what God's calling us to do. 
So I want you to start sharing Jesus right now what you know. But I want you to begin to walk with God in his word, in life groups, in other opportunities where you can learn more for the Holy Spirit to bring to your memory so that you're better prepared every day because of the preparation that you've done. But at the end of the day, always allowing God the Holy Spirit to speak through you. Does that make sense? Well, what are we to do, brothers? We're to count on the fact that the same spirit that worked through Peter and brought about 3,000 saved might want to work through you and bring to Christ somebody you work with, go to school with, play on a ball team with, a relative that you've been feuding with that needs more than anything to come to know Jesus and God's waiting on you to open your mouth so that he can speak. And we got to do it or we're missing out on what God's called us to do. Agreed? So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, repent and confess. You can do that right now. I've got some lovely folks over here that would love to pray for you. When we begin to pray, when we begin to pray with our heads bowed and eyes closed, and you're going to get up if you want somebody to pray with you, if you want to trust Christ and want to know more, these lovely folks can help you do that. When we bow our heads and close our eyes, if you want somebody to pray with you about something going on in your life, that's who can do it. They want to do it. But right now, we got to respond to God's words, whatever he said. Y'all listen up. This is an imperative. Whatever God said today to you, do it. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, stand with us while we pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that you've given to us. We ask that you will help us to know how we are to share Jesus. I pray that you will give us the courage to share him crucified, share him risen, Share him ascended and waiting, but most importantly, share him as the Lord who has been crucified in our place and for our sin, ready and willing to save all who call on his name. That name that is above every name, that name that one day every knee's gonna bow and every tongue's gonna confess to, but right now we have an opportunity to just respond in faith believing, receiving. So, Father, I pray for those who may not know Jesus as Savior. Right where they sit, I pray that you'll give them the courage to just confess, repent of their sin, turn, turn their back on who they always have been and embrace who you've called them to be, forgiven, your child, with a new destiny, a new call, a new future. Give them the courage to call upon the name of the crucified and risen Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. I pray for my brothers and sisters. Help us to see the opportunities that we've missed. Help us to grieve over those opportunities. But then, God, in the midst of our grief, give us the encouragement. Give us the courage to begin sharing today and every day forward with confidence in the Holy Spirit who is with us, who will speak through us and ultimately is responsible to drawing men and women to yourself. My God, we ask that you will use us this week for your glory. With heads bowed and eyes closed, just giving everybody a minute. If you need prayer, you want to move out.
But Father, we look out for what's in store. We know it's going to be awesome if we just let you be in control. We love you and we thank you. First in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen.